Welcome to the Waiting Room Revolution. Today, we are excited to have a patient join us, Angus Pratt, who has male breast cancer and lung cancer. I met Angus at a live event with poets who were talking poetry and healthcare and the Waiting Room Revolution, and he mentioned that he was a fan of the podcast and that the keys were helpful for his own illness experience. In this episode, we hear how he has incorporated the keys to his own illness in real time and teaches us how others can use the keys to make their experience better. Hi, I'm Sien Xiao. And I'm Sammy Winemaker. We talk to people who have information and tips on how to unlock a better illness experience. The waiting room revolution starts right now. Welcome, Angus, to the podcast. Thank you so much. I am such a huge fanboy of, of both of you. It's just been, what a blessing. I, I am really grateful to be here this morning. Well, we're grateful that you're with us this evening. We, we, we don't know a lot about you. So before we talk about your healthcare experiences, tell us about you and your life and, and what, you've, what you've been doing. The summary is really quick. I, I was born in Scotland. Um, my parents came to Canada um, when I was five and brought me along with, <laughs> thank heavens. And, um, it, I, so, and then I grew up in Northern Saskatchewan. Um, went to the University of Saskatchewan, got a degree in agriculture. Um, and then went to Central America, to Panama for 10 years and worked on the Colombian border, not growing what you think I might have been growing there, but um, working in agriculture and doing agricultural development and health um, related stuff with a CETA funded project. Um, then came back to Canada, um, unsuccessful in getting into veterinary medicine and went to do a master's in business administration to show them that I could handle the course load in vet med and decided that I'd had enough of school when I finished that and went to work in Northern Saskatchewan as a development officer, community development officer, and worked there for the next 12 years. Mm -hmm. um, I saw the potential of this thing they called the internet, um, and I, and I uh, jumped all over that and got involved in some projects, and that led to a new career as a freelance web developer, um, and that brought me out to Vancouver. So Angus, you've lived an exciting life in many places. Can you tell us a bit more about how you began to interact with the health system as a patient? I was um, diagnosed with breast cancer, interestingly enough, first, male breast cancer, um, which is as rare as hen's teeth. Um, there will be another 220 men diagnosed this year with it, but in Canada. Um, but uh, in the workup for that, they discovered that I had lung cancer. And that kind of overrode everything else um, and, and became the, the focus of treatment and, and all the rest of it. And so um, that's the focus of my serious illness. Um, but really um, the palliative care piece came shortly after I had my mastectomies um, because I had breast cancer in both breasts, like nothing like going halfway. Um, and so it, it was really um, uh, interesting. And I started on one of the new um, immunotherapies after I'd had aggressive chemo radiation initially for, for the lung cancer. They put me on one of the new immunotherapies. Um, just after all of that, my wife, um, who was American, um, was diagnosed with pancreatic cancer and was given six months to a year to live. Um, and she actually lived six weeks um, from oh, diagnosis to death. And that was really my exposure to 
palliative care. And it, and it trans that experience um, transformed my approach to my oncologists and, and to my own healthcare. Um, I take a little index card of questions in every time I go to see my doctor um, and palliative care is one of the questions that I always have on there. And mm -hmm. he laughs and he says, oh, you're not nearly ready for that yet. <laughs> and I'm probably not because I mean, I'm running 5k three times a week. Um, and, and the targeted therapy that I'm currently on mm -hmm. is extremely successful. I'm, I'm quite stable. I, I had a phone call with my oncologist yesterday, you know, the scanxiety, the CT yeah. scanxiety thing. Um, and I, I was supposed to meet with him after this mm -hmm. uh, meeting, and, and it turned out that he just called me. Um, he had the results. He had what was going on and, and spent the time of reassuring me that it's all stable. And so I'm celebrating today <laughs> as we do. So the lung cancer and the breast cancer are both stable? The, the breast cancer is minor in the scheme of things. It was stage one. Um, my brother actually had uh, male breast cancer also. My mother died of breast cancer when I was 17. So I was well familiar with it and it was caught early, which is unusual. Mm -hmm. um, and thank God it was because that's how the lung cancer was, was mm -hmm. caught. And that was, <laughs> I always tease my oncologist, it was caught at stage 3C, which is about as close to four as you can get without actually crossing the line. <laughs> mm -hmm. But um, nine months in, we, we saw um, progression from my right lobe to the left lobe. And, and that's when it became metastatic. And and I carry this little expiry date card around with me, play it occasionally. Is it okay we speak openly and frankly about? Absolutely, I am an open book. Okay. So what's your understanding of the goal of the treatment? <laughs> Stability, quality of life. Yeah. Exactly. And those are, that's a, I mean, you raise a, that's a really good question and one that, <laughs> I get, I get asked by, by doctors, what do you understand about your treatment? And I feel like asking them, um, what do you understand about my treatment? Have you read my chart? Um, which I find a lot of doctors haven't. I, I've seen a number of specialists over time and, and, you know, they're focused on their narrow speciality and, and they kind of want to get a picture of what I know. Um, and I understand that and I'm willing to answer it, but the flip side is there's a bigger picture and oftentimes I find that they're not paying attention to that bigger picture. Yeah, I find that too, that there's some issue of the day that needs to be attended to, but we don't often get invited into, okay, well, where are things at now? What's the goal now? Um, where are we at? So you say that your understanding is that this treatment is to help keep the cancer as quiet as possible for as long as possible. Um, and it sounds like you're aware that it's not a curable situation at this point. No, it was interesting. Um, yeah, no, it's not. And, and I mean, to some extent, you feel like an imposter because you feel so great. I mean, you don't have nerves in your lungs, so there's no real pain associated with what's going on there. And hey, frankly, you look great. 
exactly. You know, it's it's not it, people, and I've been. Well, here's the story. I'm talking to my oncologist about six months ago, he said, you're telling your story a lot publicly. And, and you know, oncologists are going to call you a liar. And I thought, yeah, and I get that. I mean, it's a weird story, right? The, the male breast cancer and the, yeah. and, the, and the lung cancer, that part of the story is weird too. But also how good I look. I mean, I've had, here's where, I mean, I've had trouble, for example, getting my doctor to pay attention, my GP to pay attention to a hernia that I had. Well, it was really interfering with my running, <laughs> which is a story in and of itself. But, but I finally, I, I complained about it. And my oncologist to me said, well, you know, you're pretty stable. We can mm. probably good enough to, to be anesthetized and, and have that dealt with. Um, do you want a referral? And I said, sure, that would be lovely. And, mm. and it was, it, it, it's really, I don't have to put on a truss anymore to run and get chafed and all the rest of it. It's, it's, and it's those little things. I finally got up the courage to complain about the fact that I've got this wretched cough. Um, mm. And, and again, my GP just, well, you know, you've got lung cancer. <laughs> what do you expect? Mm -hmm. um, my, my oncologist said, well, why don't you go, um, I'll, I'll give you a referral to an ENT. And I said, well, that seems like a little overboard. Mm -hmm. um, but by the end of the appointment, I said, you know, let's start there and, and just see what happens because there's so many possibilities for what it is. He's not hearing anything in my lungs. And he's mm -hmm. saying, it's not, it's not your cancer that's mm -hmm. causing that cough. So, and, and with COVID and all the rest of it, I mean, you just don't want to be coughing in public. And it's so, almost like I, it, it sounds like you have to advocate um, that I'm still a person that has more than just cancer happening here. You know, I, um, and I'm feeling good and I'm looking good and I'm still very active. And these things that I'm telling you about are affecting my quality of life. Uh, and we need to think outside of the box here. I'm not just breast cancer and lung cancer. And that's, and, and you know, I mean, I, I caught Sien's um, eye because I said this thing has literally changed my life. And that's one of the pieces that it gave me permission to, to talk about that stuff. Listening to the podcast gave me the permission to say, hey, you know, I've got this quality of life issue, a cough that I'd really like to address. And, and I realized that I have a death sentence or an expiry date or, you know, this disease ultimately is going to kill me. But until I get there, um, I kind of like to deal with this little piece of the puzzle. Mm -hmm. and, and even in asking it and getting the response that I was looking for in terms of going to an, um, an ear, nose, throat specialist, I was still reluctant to follow through on that. And then I just thought, no, this is, this is important to you. Um, take advantage of that opportunity. Don't, don't feel guilty about it um, because it really does affect you. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So, so building on that, so can I just ask, how did you hear about the podcast? And when you listened to <laughs> it, what did you think? Yeah. Dr. Paul Wheatley Price in Lung Cancer Canada in the interview that you guys did with him. Mm -hmm. um, and I heard it and I thought, this resonates so much with me. I need to hear the whole podcast. Mm -hmm. um, and, I, and I listened to it. Um, I, I listened to 
stuff when I walk in the morning. I walk morning and evening and, and, and uh, about 45 minutes morning and evening and, and I listen to it and I just, uh, it, it became my companion for the next three days as I listened to the, to the podcast and it just resonated through and through with me. Um, there were so many things that I was hearing um, that echoed my own personal experience um, I guess two pieces of the puzzle here. One is I'm really deeply involved as a mentor on cancerconnection.ca, the online forum for the Canadian Cancer Society. Mm -hmm. And I see a lot of palliative situations that come up. Um, and, and I'm always, a lot of people run away from that stuff. They don't want to, to address it. And I've there are a couple of us. Um, I managed to pick up the name nickname of Death Doula for a while. I think mm -hmm. I've managed to steer away from that. But there's a sense in which I'd like to do that formal training and get that piece mm -hmm. of experience and expertise mm -hmm. because I find that there aren't a lot of people that are willing to talk about those hard conversations. Um, I've tried various terminologies to talk about it hard conversations, tender conversations, mm -hmm. um, in, in trying to outline what those are. But so many people, um, you know, you don't hang around the cancer world for very long before you get a sense of, of you know, um, your doctor may not be telling you this is terminal, but it is, and you need to have some really hard conversations. And, and um, you're going to regret it if you don't. Have those conversations. I, I'm not sure if it was you folks. Um, somebody was talking about hope in the recent past, and it really struck me. Um, when you're first diagnosed, you hope for um, a cure, mm -hmm. and and that, and then you come for, and then you realize that no, this is not where this illness is going to lead me, um, and you start to hope for. Um, a quality of life, um, treatments that will keep you um, doing what it is you love. Yeah, and then the hope evolves to want a peaceful death. And many think about leaving a legacy or how their hope changes to focus on their loved ones so that they're taken care of or can move forward. So thank you for sharing how the interview helped you. I'm curious, I know you've shared before that before you were a patient, you were a family member dealing with this when your wife died from an illness. And I'm curious to know, how did that experience shape what you want and what you think about the idea of a palliative approach? I guess my own personal goal is to have a gentle death. And, and my wife was able to have that by virtue of the intervention um, towards the end of the palliative care team. And I just, as I got to know them, as I got I realized that we should have engaged them much sooner in the process. And that's always, um, you know, so, and, and by the time a lot of them, a lot of palliative specialists get involved. And I mean, I had no idea, you know, palliative doctor, I think it was the last interview that I heard you were saying that palliative specialty had only been approved in Canada in 2012. That blew me away. But I mean, I met, um, you know, a palliative social worker, a palliative pharmacist, a palliative um, a doctor and, a, and palliative nurses. Um, and, and it just, it, it made me realize that there was this whole realm of, of expertise out there that should have been engaged in my wife's journey and my journey as a caregiver for her much sooner. And, and 
but we had the two of us had this death squad kind of perception of, of palliative care and we weren't there yet i mean and, and admittedly it was a short trip uh, in six weeks so you know things happened really quickly but it it that came home to me in a really harsh way with my own experiences and so i've always tried to to bring that um, perspective to patients that are headed in there and, and you know I, I don't pull you know I I make the jokes about the death squad but that's not what it is it's and I and I had latched on to pain and symptom management for a long time mm -hmm. when I heard the podcast talking about managing serious illness mm -hmm. that's the piece that really resonated with me it really you know this isn't just about pain it's it's about so many other pieces it's about that big picture it's mm -hmm. it's about um, the, the not losing sight of yourself in in the process um mm -hmm. and and i guess another piece to the puzzle is she was in the american system mm -hmm. she was american and, and her treatments happened in washington state and so uh, there was there were some pieces to that puzzle that i didn't see in canada and it made me realize that there were some there were some things here that that are, are unique and, and a lot of the the information around grief and hospice and palliative um, stuff is American and, and so to try and bring that perspective to to cancer patients in my particular case is is, is a great I see a great need there and I try and address it whenever I see it mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Oh my goodness there's just way too much to talk about like I have a million things this is one of my questions for you folks. Um, is it really true that 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 people die the way they live? Um, because I see that, you know, I, I see people coming into this whole thing really angry and really upset and and they want to stomp all over the doctors and, and just it, it just they, they're angry. Yeah, I know. But they're not angry people in real life, right? So your question is around, does the illness change them permanently or how do they move from being angry to hopeful and peaceful? It's a really good question. Do people die as they live? It's one of Sammy's favorite quotes. Like, Sammy, what do you think? Okay, well, it's been my experience uh, with, you know, the people that I've met that there are certain things about people that just stay true to themselves, um, you know, for better or for worse. I'm not saying nothing will change. And I do think uh, people can gain new perspective and new insight and um, resolution and, you know, repair. I think a lot of things can change, but there are things about a person that just don't, uh, especially if you don't have time. So when we leave people in the dark for so long, and then, like we say, at the 11th hour, do the big reveal. A person doesn't have time to change much about themselves <laughs> at that point. So if there are maladaptive, um, you know, coping mechanisms and things like that, we can't expect people to suddenly become what they're, what they're not. So I think deep-rooted personalities stay the same. I think deep-rooted coping mechanisms tend to stay the same. They may come out looking a little bit differently, but when you unpack it all, it's really the same stuff. And it's really 
we never talk about this to judge someone, but it's really just to understand yourself and understand why is my friend so-and-so acting this way? And yeah, so that, that whole episode was really just about digging deep and, and realizing like, that's very powerful when we really think about it, because we should leverage those things. We should exploit those things that we know about ourselves um, as anchors to help ground us in the mystery of the huge illness, right? At least I know me, at least I know that I I'm, I'm role modeling it. Like I'm a huge talk it outer. I can't just like sort things out by myself internally. I have to talk it out with someone. And so chances are, I know it's going to be important to me if I ever am facing a serious illness or when I face a serious illness, sorry, um, that I have people to talk to, uh, that I can just let it go and, and have someone listen to me. And, you know, and there's other things I know about myself. I am a control freak. So I'm going to want to control things. And I know that when I feel I lose the ability to do those things, it's going to be hard for me, you know? So that's, anyway, that's my family coming around me and saying, you let the doctors be the doctor and you be the patient. Oh. <laughs> and, and I'm visually shaking my finger here. <laughs> So, yeah, you know, I think, I think for the most part, it's true, Angus, but, you know, I still don't think we just say, oh, okay, well, you're just going to be you. So let's just, you know, move on. What do you think, Angus? What's been your experience? It's, there are definitely moments when, when I've had to sort of step back and say, okay, I need to process this um, before I react um, because I am the kind of person that wants more information, that wants, um, and a good example of that um, to go to my wife's journey was, was um, when the doctor came in and, and this was, she'd been struggling, her body had been struggling to process morphine um, and her liver was just not doing the job. And, and um, so they, took her down for a CT scan and he came back. He, she, came, she came back to the room and I'm sitting and, and he came in a, about an hour later and said, this is a really hard conversation, but there's, not, there's nothing more we can do. And, and that was um, you know, the first time we'd kind of heard those words, expecting them perhaps, but not really. And, and, um, and he was gentle, he, he was an internist and he just said, do you want to know where this is gonna go and how it's gonna go? And, and my wife said, no, but my husband will want to know. <laughs> so go have the conversation out in the hallway. <laughs> and we did. Yeah. He, he literally leaned up against the wall and he said, the first thing that I wanna say is we doctors always get it wrong. Mm -hmm. And I just, you know, those words really resonated again with me. They stuck with me. They were, um, he wasn't that far wrong. Mm -hmm. um, and certainly um, he outlined the path and it, it clearly. Sorry to interrupt, but this is a perfect place to point out some of the keys. I mean, your wife knew her style but she, and how she wanted information. She also knew what your style was and how much information you wanted. 
and you guys were able to find a way to honor both those styles. And you're also touching on another key, zoom out, and about this path, this roadmap of her disease and how it would unfold. And so my question to you is, how have you used the key zoom out in your own disease? You know, we talk a lot about this timeline versus roadmap issue. And that's one of the things that really his, the podcast had really changed my life. That was the piece for me. I'd been struggling to get my oncologist to talk to me about the prognosis for my disease. And I'd been using the timeline, um, the palliative words, those sorts of things. And, and it was, I literally took a piece of paper and I drew a map. And I said, this is where I've come from. And this is what I know about the journey in the future. Am I right? And he was able to take that piece of paper and we were able to talk about it. And, and literally, um, so I've done a digital story for the Canadian Cancer Society on Scanxiety. It was the first one I did for them because so many patients, so many cancer patients, we, we get into this three month cycle of, okay, is there progression or not in the week? the week leading up can just be brutal um, in terms of the mental anguish that patients go through. And I wanted to talk about that and, and help other patients come to turn. First of all, it happens. We all feel it and just sort of make it a more common experience. We experience it differently. But I had a conversation with my son before my, I had a scan in August and I was talking to my son and he said, dad surely it's got to be getting easier as you know as you know you're getting so many scans under your belt and i said no you've got it completely backwards because i know that one of these times it's going to be the one where there's progression and the whole world is going to blow up and we're going to have to change all kinds of things and 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 it's the unknowing as I realized, and here's what happened was I took that map in when we went to discuss those, the results of that August CT scan. And, and I was, it, it was a very useful conversation. I knew the pieces, but I hadn't had them confirmed, validated for me. Um, and so we were able to talk about where home care might become an issue um, because now I'm living on my own and, and I don't have, my kids are in, one of them's out in Nova Scotia now. So <laughs> he just moved out to Kentville. Um, but, you know, the other one's a pipeliner in, in Edmonton and he's, he works seven days a week, 24 hours a day, it seems like to me sometimes. And, and so I don't have a lot of close family out here in Vancouver. So where, how, at what point will home care get engaged? At what point will we move to hospice? And, and how much, like, preparation does that have to have? And we had that conversation. It wasn't a long conversation. I don't think it was more than five or 10 minutes. But this scan, so I just had a scan a week ago, and I got the results yesterday. And, and there was no buildup. There was no anxiety. Now, part of it was I was pretty busy. But, but part of it was just there was a calmness knowing that, oh, if there's progression, this is the, these are the next steps. These are the pieces that we'll do. And it's not that I'm going to be rushed off to you know, social worker making home care arrangements. It's, you know, some other pieces. I'm just tickled pink about everything you've said, because essentially the reason, so someone like you would tend to go asking these kinds of questions to their doctor or their nurse who would then turn around and say, oh, Angus, why are you asking this stuff right now? Come on, uh, 
don't go there yet. Um, you're not ready yet. We don't have to have those conversations yet. But what you did when you brought that diagram with you is basically you said to your doctor or nurse without saying it, I give you, no, you said, this is who I am and this is what I need. And this is what I need from you. And I know what the big picture is here. I know where this is going. So you have permission. I am inviting you in to my world where we're gonna talk openly and frankly about this. And so doctors and nurses have told us that they don't tend to go there until the patient and family comes out and asks. And even when patients and families ask, some doctors and nurses run away. It's when you ask, but you chase it with something like, I'm asking because this is really important to me. I will feel better if I know what's around the corner. I, I want to plan. I'm a planner. You bring your CV with you, Angus. I'm Angus. I'm a control freak. I'm living by myself. My sons are not living with me. My wife has recently passed and I feel like I need to know. I need to be in the know. And because you presented yourself that way with a diagram, you got exactly what you needed. And I think it is hugely powerful what you said about this CAT scan waiting for it was different. And you were busy. Yeah, busyness is great. But I would agree with you. It probably is because you had a plan B. You knew if this, then that. You talked about the what ifs. You could hope for the best, but you've planned for the rest. You've done, you've, you, it's incredible what you're role modeling. That first episode of, of Walk Two Roads, um, yes, hope for the best, but plan for the rest. Um, that got reiterated over the course of the next couple of weeks um, over and over again. Like so many cancer patients in particular, they come looking for positivity. They come looking for hope. Mm -hmm. and, and I don't want to be the one um, that pours the water on that hope. I, I think, you know, I, I often... Um, I always struggle. No, I don't struggle. I, I think hope is a wonderful thing. Mm -hmm. and, and I think that it's, it, it's so critical to resilience. Mm -hmm. But I also believe firmly that reality is, is also critical. Um, mm -hmm. And that, that you have to keep yourself grounded and, and recognize the, the longer, the bigger picture, the longer term view. Angus, we could not have said it better ourselves. I mean, hope has to be grounded in open information so that it's realistic hope rather than false hope or unrealistic hope, which can potentially be damaging. So I'm, I'm wondering, when you had that roadmap, how did that help you exactly? Like, what did you do with that information? So again, having that bigger picture has allowed me to start some conversations about, you know, should I be thinking about moving from Vancouver to Kelowna? Should I be thinking about moving to Edmonton where my children are? Um, or, or, you know, can we rally around here um, where I have 
my friends as a support network. Now, most of my support network was across the border in Blaine, which has um, been another set of challenges, but there's a new support network growing here. And so, but having those conversations, um, not being morbid about it, but being realistic is important. And that's the whole, you know, planning for the rest um, piece. Well, thanks so much, Angus. I mean, that key walk to roads and hoping for the best, planning for the rest. We spent so much time on, you know, fiddling with the language and the metaphors, all the metaphors really, to get those right, because we wanted them to resonate with patients and families without being scary. Part of what prompted me to speak up in the Poetic Connections where we first met Sian was, was language is so important. Um, and, and, and what the podcast gave me was different language. Um, you know, I wasn't asking in my, I had a mentor once that used to say, getting the question right is the key. And I think that so many of us have, you know, the Canadian Cancer Society is wonderful. They have all these wonderful lists of questions that you should ask your doctor, you should ask your oncologist. And, and we don't, um, but those lists have to be personalized. They have to be, they have to be your language and they have to be um, language that the doctor can hear. And I think that that's what the podcast gave me um, was, was the word roadmap. You know, instead of, in, it, that was the revelation for me that literally transformed. You know, you're um, the doctor who brought you outside to give you more information about your wife's um, situation. You know, that is palliative care. So, you know, people talk like they're waiting for a palliative care doctor like me or a team like my the team I'm on, the death squad, whatever it is. But ideally a palliative approach is um, integrated into the skill set of every oncologist, every internist, every family doctor, every nurse. Um, so for example, these conversations you're having with your oncologist now is allowing your oncologist to provide a palliative approach alongside um, the treatment for your lung cancer. But you have invited your oncologist to do that without ever using the P word. See, the P word gets very confusing for people because they think it's either a point in time where you're suddenly palliative so you get things like we said, oh, we don't have to talk about that yet because you're not at that palliative point yet. And it's not, it's not a point. It's not a diagnosis. Patients aren't palliative. Patients require a palliative approach and we're all responsible for it. And the incredible thing about what you're saying, Angus, is that you are sucking it out of the system without even knowing, and you're getting it already. Surprise, you're already getting palliative care. You are, because you're walking two roads with your oncologist. And that's the foundation of um, a relationship around hope and reality with your healthcare provider. You've done it. But if you went and said to your doctor, looking the way you're looking so good, you know, I think I need palliative care. They would say, not yet. But instead, you've gone to the healthcare system in the way that you have, and you're now getting palliative care without anyone labeling it. It's beautiful. 
and that and that goes beyond the doctor too. I mean, I, I by you've given me permission. Um, I'm not sure it'll happen tomorrow, but in the next while, to approach the home care folks and say, "Hey, you know, I, I I'm on this road, and at some point, I'd like you to come into my home and evaluate it, and and tell me, you know, don't." try and survive here because we can't get a bed in or whatever. It's impossible to put handrails in your shower, uh, <laughs> whatever those folks do, um, you know, but it, 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 it's that, that permission is there. And, and I think that it's, it's that the, the conversation about, you know, um, customizing your order the, yeah. to use those words. Um, so I can have those conversations about, you know, are you going to be comfortable changing my depends when I get there? Mm -hmm. um, because that's where this is going to go. Ultimately, those are the kind of, if I'm going to stay at home, and obviously, from the conversation we've had already, that's my preference, as long as I can, as long as I can manage it. Mm -hmm. But it, it's going to take some pieces that, that have to be put in place. My question for you, then, Dr. Winemaker would be, I know, I think I know what my strengths are, but what do you see as my greatest weaknesses? What are the things that are going to cause me the greatest challenge? For you specifically? Yeah. Well, one practical thing you've already mentioned, which is if someone wants to stay at home to a point, you know, and through the chapter where you start needing someone to help you with your own personal care, it's hard to pull that off as a one person show. That you, if, if one wants to stay home, they at some point will need a person to help with their own personal care. For many of my uh, people, they say, well, I want to stay at home until then. Uh, and that's a win for me. At that point, I would prefer to go to a hospice or something like that. But if you truly want to stay at home until the very end, you need a person um, who will be able to attend to you uh, and not just like come for half an hour a day. You need someone with eyes and ears just, you know, in the vicinity. So that's one practical thing. I guess if I was to think more about it, I would say you might struggle if you're ever in a situation where you feel like the healthcare people or your crew around you are not being honest and straight up with you. I think you would struggle because you clearly um, value uh, truth and reality. And so people who may feel uncomfortable talking about any of that, you know, might come around you with toxic positivity. And I don't think that's going to go over well. Um, so, but I have no doubt that you'll course correct them. But someone like you, if you didn't course correct them, would be would not do well with with the disconnect between what you're feeling and what people are saying to you. So my my approach in general is is quite gentle. Um, I, I, I was um, sitting in on a session at the World Conference Lung Cancer um, 2021, and and there was a clinician talking about palliative care for lung cancer patients and the grief, specifically the grief um, that comes around that. And, and my question to her was, as a patient, what can I do for the clinician 
the doctor that's dealing with me, mm -hmm. uh, it, and, which is, I mean, it was, they, they fumbled around the question and yeah. then sort of meant to, like, that's such a rare question. That's not something mm -hmm. that patients think about, yeah. which I realized, you know, we, we put doctors on such pedestals that we don't recognize they're human too, that they put their pants on one leg at a time, just like the rest of us. Um, and and it, it, it never ceases to amaze me. Um, you know, there are six cancer patients, lung cancer patients that die a day in British Columbia. To imagine that my oncologist isn't the oncologist to one or two of those a week um, is just, uh, I would have my head in the sand if I didn't recognize that about his life. And mm -hmm. I know that my involvement in the cancer world is such that I'm seeing these cancer patients die around me all the time. And I struggle with that mm -hmm. piece. Like you get these deep emotional ties to other patients because you're walking on a similar journey and then they're gone. Um, and, and to, to, so how do we, how do we let the doctors, to me that, that this is an important piece of the puzzle because doctors it, it will, I, they'll build a wall to protect themselves from that grief. In, okay. in but Angus, Angus, you're doing exactly what the antidote is to that, to a sense of physician grief and, and helplessness, um, which comes out many times as building the wall and stealing themselves because they can't let that sadness in. What you did for your doctor is the antidote, which is to give permission for your doctor to talk about the reality of the situation. That actually will make your doctor feel less helpless, feel like that interaction was meaningful to your doctor. Your doctor won't say to you, like you were told, in your wife's situation, you said the doctor said, I'm sorry, there's nothing more we can do. Your oncologist would not feel that way because you have a, you've invited your oncologist to care for you in a way that was unfamiliar to him. He's familiar with treatments and CAT scans and clinical trials and um, your sputum and your cough. He would be less familiar with this kind of care that involves shepherding um, being, acknowledging, entering into, as you said, tender conversations, you will make your doctor feel like they can still provide care. So that's really important because if that doesn't happen, this is when we have patients not getting their needs met and doctors feeling like they want to transfer patients to the death squad and feeling helpless and saying, I have no crystal ball and there's nothing more I can do for you because they haven't been trained to, to open those conversations like you showed your doctor to do. I think what strikes me listening to you, Angus, is how you've really affirmed these keys for us. And you've shown us that someone can use these proactively early on in their journey so that it can change the experience for the better. And that information is power. So thank you so much. I have two other things you're going to struggle with. You want to know? Yeah, yeah. Because <laughs> I want to just finish that piece off. Two things. 
One is, is that you're going to want to be treated as a human, as an individual, as Angus. And so if there's ever a time that you feel like you're being sort of standardized, that's not going to feel good for you. And also the last thing I think that um, will take some adjustment is any physical changes, uh, because you are such a physically active person uh, and you're physically strong uh, and independent that at some point when, when that's more of a challenge, I think it's going to require you redefining how you bring your person forward. But, you know, I wanted to just say one thing before you go in, I wanted to tell you, I have no doubt that you are going to rise to all those occasions, um, because you are an activated person. And I have no doubt that every single thing that I said, you are going to sort out. And, and I predict for you that you are going to stay Angus until the last second of whatever you choose, because that's just the way you are. Um, and so you're right. I mean, the physical decline is going to be a challenge for me. It was, it was around the initial treatment. Uh, you know, the, the weekend that I spent about mid chemo with my son and I couldn't do all the activities because I was just too fatigued, um, really preyed on me. And, and but you know, Angus, you have already proven having gone through, you know, your wife's experience, which was your experience and your breast cancer, then your lung cancer. And God knows, you know, your life has changed, but you know, you, you do roll with the punches. You do. And you have your ways of dealing and coping with things and you're here smiling and laughing and engaging. And so again, that predicts for you that no matter what you are going to continue to adjust, you're an adjusting kind of person. You will find your new rhythm every time uh, a, a curveball comes your way. Thank you so much for that affirmation. So Angus, we're nearing the end of our interview. Is there anything else you wanted to add? that we haven't talked about yet? Um, I, I wanna read a poem, um, which I, it, it wouldn't be me if I didn't do this. So um, I was part of a retreat, a spiritual retreat um, several months ago, and, and I was reflecting on my journey. And, and this poem um, came out of a, a, a wrestling that I was having with God that I, I choose to think of as creator. The poem's called Love's Intention. Can I know if God exists? Will I ever be convinced that they love me? Why does creeping Charlie have such yellow blossoms? Is that important? I can't find that yellow in my palette. Picking up my brush to find the easy stroke that captures the graceful curve, the curve of a blossom smile. Am I important? Does the grass know that the blossom is there? Will the ant crawl through? How does the runner get from there to here? Poetry is not to be questions, only metaphor and obscurity. Yet it speaks to us from in that darkness like a flower in the lawn. Is this cough a reaction to air filled with pollen? Or is it the regression that will take my life eventually? I talk casually of my expiry date, my best before date, and why did people run? 
then bejeweled the iridescent rainbow flash of a hummingbird. And I know the wonder of creation. My brush finds the yellow and the paint flows in a blossom stroke. Mm. To me, that speaks to the hope um, in, in our part in the bigger picture. Um, and, and to me, that's, that's what I try and share with my fellow journeyers, pilgrims on this path. Um, my, my nickname on Cancer Connection is West Coast Sailor. I love sailing. Haven't for a couple of years now been able to do it. Um, but um, because my access to sailboats was all in the States and I can't get across that wretched border. But it, 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 for me, the metaphor is journey. And, and, and it works so well um, in, in, you know, as a sailor tacking and, and I, I, I can't um, control the wind. All I can do is adjust my sails. And that to me is what the plan B is all about. Um, you know, that wind shifts sometimes and I have to change. Um, I love the, I think it's Eisenhower that said, <laughs> no good battle plan survives its first encounter with battle. <laughs> and that is so true. Um, but it doesn't mean we don't plan. Um, it's just you know, we do that. Your poem to me, I, what I thought was really interesting was the fact that you couldn't find the color. Um, and it's when you introduce this idea of speaking your truth and your reality that afterwards you write, you found the yellow. And that was the exact experience. Mm -hmm. So it's a very powerful poem. Thank you. Wow. What a way to end an interview. Thank you so much for speaking with us today. It's truly an honor. So Angus, I just wanted to say that you've made my day in a big way. Um, and likewise, I, I was so looking forward to this. And, and Thanks for listening. Please visit our website, waitingroomrevolution.com to listen to our first season about the seven keys and to learn more. The podcast is produced and edited by me and Kayla McMillan. Our theme music is Maypole by Ketza. Please rate, review, and subscribe to our podcast and help us get the word out.